Welcome to My American Melting Pot, the podcast where we have conversations about pop culture, parenting, and identity politics, all from a multicultural perspective. I'm your host, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an author, a journalist, a mother of three, and a self-proclaimed diversity diva. I'm really glad you're here because, as usual, we have a lot to talk about. On episode 14 of My American Melting Pot, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Tembi Locke. Tembi is the author of the new book, From Scratch, a memoir of love, Sicily, and finding home. From Scratch is the first book selected for the My American Melting Pot Book Club, which I just launched at the beginning of May. Now, the criteria for a book to be chosen for the book club is that it has to be authored by a person of color, the story must explore cross-cultural relationships in some way, and offer the possibility for a transformative experience. From Scratch meets all of those criteria and more as it details how Tembi met and fell in love with her Italian husband, Saro, during her junior year abroad in college, then talks about how she lost Saro to cancer, and finally, how Tembi rebuilt a life for herself and her young daughter, Zoella, with the help of Saro's family and many home-cooked meals in Sicily. This book is delicious and devastating, heartbreaking and hopeful, and I can't wait to talk to Tembi about it. But before we dive into that conversation, you know we have to take a break for a Melting Pot Minute. Today's Melting Pot Minute is brought to you by Naughty and Nice. Naughty and Nice. Don't feel guilty about it. Just enjoy it. Naughty and Nice. Hello, Melting Pot community. Since today's episode focuses on our first book club pick, I thought I would stick with the literary theme and share with you my picks for summer beach reads. Now, mind you, these are the books I plan on reading this summer, not ones that I have already read. Before we can get started with the list, I want to give you my definition of a summer beach read. A summer beach read means that the beach or the pool is the logical place that you should read said book. That means it should come in paperback. It should easily fit into a beach bag and not weigh it down. That means it should not be too heavy. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. For me, a beach read should be lighthearted, fair, perfect for reading in the summer. I don't want to be crying on the beach, nor do I want to have to bring my dictionary to decipher the text. Real talk, I read all year round, a lot. So I really do think of my summer reading as vacation reading, and that usually means chiclet and romance. No shame in my game, I'm admitting it right here on the podcast that I am a huge fan of romance and chiclet novels, and I have been since I was a teenager. But like all things in my life, even my chiclet and romance has to be diverse and somewhat meaty. I am not here for vanilla love stories. Sorry, Nicholas Sparks. I am going to be on the beach a lot this summer as we're going to be in the south of Spain, which also means there's a lot of siesta time to account for. So my book bag is going to be packed. And here's what's on my list so far. Jasmine Gilroy's two latest books, The Wedding Party and The Proposal. I already read Jasmine Gilroy's debut novel, The Wedding Date, last year. It was a super fun interracial romance set in contemporary California. I loved it, so that's why I picked up the proposal, and I still have to purchase The Wedding Party. Each one of her books features a multiracial cast, steamy romance, and relatable real-life storylines. Also on my list, Crazy Rich Asians. I know I may be the last person in America to have not actually read the book by Kevin Kwan, but hey, better late than never. And I know he has two more books in that series, China Rich Girlfriend and Rich People Problems. I may throw those into the bag as well. I really love the fact that even though I'm reading Chick Lit, I still get the opportunity to dive into other cultures, even if it's just fluff. And finally, I know I just said I don't want heavy hardcovers, but I may break my rule to pack Leila Lalemi's new book, The Other Americans. Here's how it's described from the publisher. The Other Americans is a timely and powerful new novel about the suspicious death of a Moroccan immigrant that is at once a family saga, a murder mystery, and a love story, all of it informed by the treacherous fault lines of American culture. I mean, that book just screams melting pot with its themes around family, a multicultural cast of characters, love, identity politics. 
Plus, as a former exchange student to Morocco, I love reading anything about Moroccan culture. And Leila Lalami is Moroccan as well. So yeah, that book is probably going to be in my bag. So there you have it. These four, maybe six, if I read all of Kevin Kwan's books, are on my reading list for my time in Spain, which begins in mid-June and ends in early August. I'll put links to the books in the show notes if you'd like to read some of these titles as well. Then we can compare notes. Now, speaking of good books, let's get to our discussion with Tembi Locke about her great new book, From Scratch. Welcome to My American Melting Pot, Tembi Locke. Hello, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it is absolutely a pleasure, and I have to say that I'm so excited that you wrote this book at the same time that I wanted to launch a My American Melting Pot book club. Well, I think it's incredibly synchronistic, and I loved listening to the criteria for the book, for your book club choices. And in a lot of ways, you sort of spoke what was in my heart's intention in writing the book. You know, I wanted to touch those points, definitely this idea of people feeling transformed or their way they think about the world being different on the other side of reading it. I'm just going to like play fangirl for a second, but I actually heard about your book from your sister, Attica Locke, the author. I follow her on Facebook, and she mentioned that her sister was writing a book or something. And then I don't even remember how it got into my inbox exactly. But when I heard about it, I was just excited because I don't know if you know that I wrote a memoir called Kinky Gazpacho, and it is my experience studying abroad in Spain, meeting my future husband, my future husband, he's my now husband. He is from a small town in the south of Spain, and your story just resonated so much with me. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read this book. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about book club or anything like that. But as soon as I finished reading your book, I mean, what am I saying? I was halfway through it. I'm like, this is it. This is the book. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I love your story. I need to know more. But we so maybe we can talk about that, too. But I'm sure it'll come <laughs> well, up. Yeah. I'm sure it'll come it up. It has to because, again, so much of what I was, when I was um, reading from scratch, I connected with the story so much because I could see myself in your story. And that was the first question I wanted to ask you was, Who were you writing for? Like, who did you really think was going to connect with the story you wanted to tell? Oh, wow. That's a big question. I think at different times, I mean, this is kind of an answer, non-answer, but I think in a lot of ways throughout the writing of the book, I was writing for different people. Mostly I was writing for myself (laughs) because I was making sense of my own experience, right? So I think as writers, we do that. We're sort of first writing for ourselves to see, can I actually communicate this? Does this make sense? You know, and, and you learn more in the writing and in the rewriting. But there are definitely places where in the book, and I'm thinking of specific chapters, where I was aware that I was very much writing for someone who may have never been to Sicily, may have never been in a small town in the mountains, may have never experienced a deeply old world and agrarian way of living. And I needed to bring that piece to them and make them feel that they were there with me. And then there are other chapters where I was very much writing to people who have experienced loss and like really trying to bring my experience to bear on the page in the hopes that someone else might see themselves in my experience. You know, that idea of like, you know, we get to the universal through the specific, right? So using the very specific details of my life, but connecting it to something that's universal to all of us. Um, And, you know, at times I was writing to my daughter, right? The sense that this book would be a kind of a love letter and a legacy for her. So yeah, yeah, I think it sort of changes over the course of the book. And at different times, I'm writing for different people, I guess. Yeah, you know, I actually started writing Kinky Gaspacho, I always tell people, for my children, because Mm -hmm. I was struggling with being a Black woman in Spain. And my first son had been born. And I was like, I have got to reconcile my feelings of anger and confusion about being Black in Spain, so I should write about it. (laughs) That's kind of my answer. absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, on the page, we get to sort of explore things, explore the shadow. Sometimes we can just vomit up all the, the negative stuff, you know, and all the feelings we don't like and kind of get all that out there and then walk away from it. And I think one of the beautiful things about writing as an art form and also just as a way of better understanding life is that you can come back to it the next day and look at it and you feel different, you know, like, okay, I got all that out, but now what's really underneath that? And then you peel back the layer or you go back in deeper. So I totally know, I mean, many times, especially during Sato's illness, I definitely wrote a great deal to just write out the feelings and the making sense part came later, much later. You know, I was one of the things that as a writer myself and as someone who, you know, I teach writing, I teach memoir all the time. Sometimes people have just brilliant stories, but they're not necessarily great storytellers. But your book was so beautifully written. I mean, I was sobbing. I was hungry for the food you were describing. I could see Sicily. I was like, oh, yes, in Sicily. I was like, if people, are you, been, no, I've not been to Sicily, but I read this book. And I mean, I felt like I was there. I know your in-laws intimately. Oh, oh that's a compliment. Thank you. But, so tell me how you just mentioned that while Sara was ill, you were writing, but I know you're an actress by trade. How does writing play a part in your everyday life? And tell us a little bit about your writing process. Like, you know, how did this book come to be? Because a book is, that's a lot of writing. Oh, it is. It is. Um, I've been writing off and on really, I could say my whole life. I mean, at the very basic level, just journaling since I was a teen, you know, I would be holed up at my grandmother's house for the summer and not know what to do. I'd stopped watching soap opera. So I just go to my journal and like write stuff. Do you know what I mean? And so I've got like, you know, these, I have journals going back many years off and on. I'm not, you know, it'd be years where I'd write nothing. And then, you know, a little bit, but while I was in Italy, which is, you know, the book effectively opens the first full chapter of the book is me landing as a co-ed in Italy. And I, definitely journal through that whole time. So I have a history of writing things down to a degree. And then when Sato became ill, right, fast forward in time. And so I'm an actor, yes. And one of the things about being a caregiver is often it sort of interrupts the normal flow of life as critical illness will do and does. I was finding myself not able to quite act as much because I was really needed at home in a different way and the kinds of jobs I could take were different. But what I knew I needed to do was stay close to my creative self. And I have some beautiful people who are mentors in my life who are like, okay, you've got to find a way to channel some of this because you're a creative person and for you to not be creative is, is it's gonna, you're gonna suffer more than you already are. So I took a writing class at UCLA, at UCLA Extension, and that turned into another class and to another class. And over the course of Sato's illness and even after he passed, I did a, you know, a creative writing program there. I finished a certificate program. And the work that I did over those years, over many, many, many classes, kind of became the backbone of what would be the book. Uh, I didn't know that I was writing a book at the time. I mean, I loosely had an idea, but I thought maybe I would write some essays about caregiving or something like that. I didn't First of all, the idea of a book-length narrative just was daunting. You know, where do I begin? Where do I end? What happens in the middle? Like, all of that structurally felt very overwhelming. And I also know a lot about that because, as you said, my sister is a writer, so I'm very aware of... You know, I have I have someone in my life who does it incredibly well. <laughs> I mean, she's <laughs> incredibly well. So mm -hmm. I also, and I see the time that she puts into that. So I also knew that for me to do a book was a mammoth task. So the book didn't come fully formed in my imagination all at once. It was a very much a slow layering process and lots of writing in classes and in journals. But the pivotal moment came while I was in Sicily, after Sato passed, I would send these emails home. I would write these long emails about my day, kind of the way, you know, a century ago, you would write a letter, you know, and put, send it off, you know, and then someone would write you back. And I would send it to my mom, my dad, my sister, you know, and a couple of close friends. And my sister was the one who stepped forward to say, oh my God, she was like, I'm laughing, I'm crying. Like, I can't wait for tomorrow's, you know, installment of Small Town in Sicily. And she said, Tembi, I think you have a book here. And I still didn't totally see it, but I was remember being in, um, you know, in Alibinosa, and there was a day when I was 
it was the afternoon and I was watching Zoella play on the street and I was watching my mother-in-law sit on the bench and I was there and I asked myself, how the heck did we all get here? And that question became the book. Answering that question kind of became the book. How did we, the three of us, these three women of three different ages, my daughter being a young woman at the time, she was probably about eight or nine. And the person who we all connected to, Sado, is no longer with us in present physical form. And so how are we holding this together, the three of us? And what does that look like? And that coupled with all the writing I'd done, coupled with my sister nudging me and saying, I think at one point she said, if you don't write this book, I'm not going to speak to you. (laughs) And by the way, if you know my sister and anything about her... You listen <laughs> when she speaks. <laughs> and and then I think it took me probably a couple of years. So that would have been like about the third year after Sato passed. A two year, about within two years, I was ready. I felt like, okay, I got to do this or it's going to hurt more if I don't at least try. And so are you happy with what came out? I am. I am. And I want to just circle back because I didn't answer one piece of what you said, which is my writing process. So when I actually started writing, the process was, it was ad hoc. It was catch where catch can. It was like, you know, because I'm a mom, I, you know, I'm a solo mom. So I wrote when and where I could. I had some sort of bookended times, but a lot of it was I wrote in the parking lot at Starbucks. I'd write in my bed. I'd write in my living room. I'd write at the kitchen table. You know, I didn't, I, and, and that kind of, you know, from a, any writers out there who are listening, you I'm sure know, it's very stressful if you feel like you don't have a set structure, but I was also auditioning and working on set. And I just had to really go with the fact that it wasn't going to look like my ideal form of a writing process, and I just had to do it anyway. And that became kind of the driving energy to get me through to a fully completed manuscript and a first draft, and a lot of anxiety and tears and all the things that come up, right, when you have a deadline and you know you're trying to do something really big and for the first time. You know, I'm a first-time novel, a, a, a memoirist, so it's a big deal to sort of be brave enough to trust that you can get there, even when sometimes you don't know how. Yeah, and I can only, I mean, everything you just said completely resonates with me as a writer and I'm sure with anybody else who has attempted to write a book because you're laying everything out there and particularly with memoir. And then even more, the topic that you're writing about is so painful. I mean, like that had Lori, to be- It was harrowing. I mean, I have to say, like I, I sometimes I wake up, you know, the book has been out- you know, roughly a month-ish now, right? Or a little less than. And I still sometimes pick it up, look at it, and it's, I have a moment of disbelief, right? That like I actually was able to do it and complete it because I had to ask of myself to revisit the most painful moments of my life. So it's painful enough to go through it, but then it's another layer to re-enter the pain, to sit in it, to be able to write about it so that it can be shared. Someone asked me this recently, and I talked about the particularly the traumatic parts of the book. Any writers out there who are writing about trauma in a certain way, I had to have for myself a lot of rituals to allow myself in to those spaces and then rituals to get myself out of those spaces so that I could then be present in my life, you know, in 2018 when I was writing the book, you know, (laughs) because as memoirs, we are excavating memories, joyous ones, painful ones, and trying to reveal and be as authentic as possible. So I had, you know, I definitely um, cried a lot. I had sleepless nights. I had moments of joy. I had moments where I would only be able to get out maybe a paragraph for the day and then I used to walk away. But I did a lot of ritual, you know, and I saved certain sections for when I knew I had the space and time to linger in it. And I had enough safety around me, you know, in the form of helpful friends or, you know, something that I would always create something to look forward to on the back end. That was big for me. (laughs) Like, I'm going to go have a lovely dinner and a glass of wine (laughs) when I get through with this. And because, I mean, the story, again, I just remember just crying through many parts of the book and feeling like I knew your whole story. And again, I know as memoirists, we have to tell a complete story or it falls flat. I mean, it doesn't hit the right notes, but were there still parts that you kept to yourself? Were there still parts of the story that you 
said, no, I'm not going to share that. I'm keeping that for myself and sorrow. I'm keeping that for my daughter. I did. I absolutely did. But what I did for myself was I allowed myself to write it out first because I knew I wasn't sharing it yet. It was just for me. And then I needed to step away and look back and see, did I really need that? Did I want to just keep that for myself? And my litmus test was always, I'm not afraid of challenging something that scares me. But if after I write it and get it out, I feel like, oh, okay, yeah, I feel better. I shared that. But if after I write it, I still have to revisit it. I'm still asking. It's not sitting well with me. I know that either there's something in the writing that's not quite right, or I'm not ready to go there yet. Mm. And maybe I'll come back to it, you know, three weeks a month, you know, whatever my timeline is. And so I kind of use that as a gauge, but there were also parts that are very private. I mean, my daughter is in the book, both, you know, how she comes into our family through adoption. And then there's also up until she's age effectively nine, right? So it touches on parts of her life from age zero to nine, but I'm not going to give everything about her. She is, you know, it's her life, right? And it's my memoir. It's not a book about her. So I was very aware as a mother of wanting to be protective of her and her privacy, if you will, but also still be real and open and and share what needs to be shared to move the story forward. And there are definitely memories with Sato that I kept to myself. And the the other thing is you have to as a memoirist, because our relationship, it touches chronologically, you know, it has a a foot in three different decades over the course of the book. And so there's no way I could give every moment, you know, um, just right there. So it makes you get really clear about which ones are going to help to tell the story that I was seeking to tell. Yeah. And I, again, I read, I can't help it. I read as a you know, a reader, but I also read as a writer. Like, I'm always kind of dissecting, like, Mm -hmm. how did she structure this to be so, you know, so powerful? And, you know, and I didn't know how the story was going to unfold, but I really appreciated how Sorrow's death was, like, right up front. So we weren't building up to a death. We were really on this journey with you of healing. But at the same time, we got to see the love. And I think you just did such a great job of showing how much this man loved you. Like the love story was just so powerful. I mean, I think everybody who reads this book is going to love your husband. Mm, um, wow. Oh, but thank I you. Just, the image yeah. of him in the rain. Waiting for yeah, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, like Sato. Oh, Sato. Oh, Sato. I know, I know, I know. You know, it, it's so interesting. Um, you know, I, there are so many things I could speak to on everything you just said about, you know, sort of the love piece and Sato and the kind of man he was. And I was very, so in terms of the structure, I kind of always knew it would be the three summers. I always knew that I would be touching back to the past, but starting from the point of view, I'm already widowed. But I did have a version of the book early on that moved more in a chronology. So I had the present timeline, which was like, you know, effectively me and Cicely over the course of these three summers. But over the course of those three summers, I was touching back to memories in the past. And it was kind of moving up to his death, meaning you knew he was... You knew he was no longer with us because of the prologue, but then I was going to move up to his passing, and that came toward the end of the book. And it was really my editor, when she read my first whole draft, and I had been sort of slowly building that impending loss, right? And she gave a really great note, which was she invited me to look at the possibility of moving that moment very early on in the book. And she said, and what it would do for the reader and really anchoring the reader early on and toggling between past and present early on in the book. And she presented a, you know, she kind of gave me some suggestions. You can kind of play with that and go with it. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I was like, wait, what? I can't. I was like, huh? You know, I definitely had, you know, kind of like, oh my gosh, what is happening moment. Um, But when I did that, it freed me up also because I didn't realize that in the writing and trying to build up to this moment with the reader's going to know what's coming. I mean, it's not like I was saving it in some way, but in a certain sense, it made the read harder because you weren't going on a journey of my healing. You were going on a journey. You knew I was okay because obviously I was in Sicily, but you also still were constantly reliving that pain in a straight line, more of a straight line. And so by moving that closer to the front, it it's anchoring early on the reader in the most joyous and the most painful aspect 
two moments of my life within the first hundred pages, which is meeting him and falling in love with him and then losing him. And then from then on, you know, it's like it kind of grounds the reader. And for me, even as a writer, it grounded me in the emotion. And it freed me up, actually, for the rest of the writing when I reordered and, you know, kind of re... So I kind of both had the structure, but then I found it in the editing. I had to kind of write it in a straight line only to play around with it. Yeah, and that's that's the fun of writing. Um, yeah. I, that's what I think is the fun of writing. I mean, it's painful and long and arduous. And when someone says, hey, have you think about changing this completely around? You're like, what? No! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I cried. But... No, 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 Lori. I... I tears. No, no, no. I was like, this is no, I, you know, but then I knew what I'd signed up for and I knew I really wanted to tell the story. So I was willing to give it a go. Well, I think it works wonderfully. I mean, it was, like you said, and it it just, you know, because I thought about, well, what if she had done it in a different way? Like, I felt like, like you just said, we didn't have to kind of build up to that. It's like we knew it was going to happen and we could just go along with you. It, it, Like you said, it grounded us. So I want to switch gears for just a minute and bring us a little bit more into the present in yeah. your current life. I want to talk a little bit about being a Black woman in Italy, being a Black woman mm. in Europe and what that is like. And I'm going to just um, give that little bit of background for myself. I mentioned that I met my husband when I was studying for my junior year of college. I think we're about the same age and went to have been going back and forth to Spain for, you know, many years. Every summer we would go to the town where my husband was born and raised. And um, it was always challenging. I mean, it was always Mm -hmm. challenging because I was stared at and pointed at. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. like a violent racism kind of thing at all, but it was always that kind of, I cannot just blend in. I'm not going (laughs) to be let go, you know, and people... I'll just say again, it was challenging. So I'm going to go back to Spain this summer, actually, for the first time in about seven years. And I'm actually going to be writing a story about, you know, 10 years later, what's it like to be Black in Spain? Oh, interesting. And so you've had like a similar, you know, time frame mm-hmm. of going back and forth to Italy, you know, and you touch on this in the book somewhat, but obviously this wasn't the focus. But what is it like? And have you seen a change, particularly since you now kind of have a place of residence there and particularly in a small town? What's that like being Black, a Black American particularly? Because I know Black is defined in a lot of different ways. You'll have different experiences as an African, but what's it like being a Black American? I would say, I mean, I would, I can contrast it by saying what it was like as a co-ed student mm-hmm, versus what mm-hmm. it's like now, right? And there's, it's been a lot of change in between. But back when I was a college co-ed, I remember um, there were almost no African-American people in Florence at the time, maybe me and like two other women. <laughs> and the rest were, you know, Senegalese immigrants, right? And the way I was first struck by the way that for Italians at that time who were just beginning to absorb a community of people who are now very integrated into the community, but, you know, the Senegalese presence, right? And so I do, we just all got lumped in together. And I was like, wait, I actually don't know that person. Like, like they, you know, like we actually come, you know, from two, like I didn't, and that was shocking to me, like that Italian, but I realized Italians at that time had no nuance for, it just, they saw an external Right. And they just lumped everybody together. So and I remember very clearly thinking like someone saying, well, why don't you because I knew I wanted to be an actress when I finished college. You're like, why don't you, you know, stay in Italy? And I think maybe Sato and I even had these conversations like, why don't you stay in Italy? And and I looked around and I thought, what would I do as an actor in Italy? (laughs) And when I looked at the television, it was like I would do a chocolate commercial or a coffee (laughs) commercial. And I was like, no way in the H-E double hockey sticks. Am I <laughs> going to do this? Like, that is so limiting. And I'm laughing just... so hard because I was once chased when I was living in I'm Salamanca. Sure I was chased by some children who were singing the song for, like, the hot chocolate were. commercial. Of course they because were. Because yes. that's, re- that's the only connection to Black people they had was, like, hot Thank chocolate. You. Thank you. Okay, so that's the 90s. And then I'm going to fast forward now, and we're in, like, second term of the Obama era. And I'm in Sicily as a mom and as a wife and in a small town, and a town that is a small town, so they don't even have the benefit of tourism, right? Or, (laughs) um, you know what I mean? And it's in the interior. And people stop me on the street, and they ask me, what does Obama think? 
of, you know, ex foreign policy that has to do with Syria, right? Which one, I'm both like, before I can even get to sort of being shocked that I'm being asked to speak on behalf of President Obama, I have to first, <laughs> like, you know, clock the fact that they actually know more about the policy, his policy with Syria than I do, because it affects them more. They're so close to it geographically, right? And it's really meaningful to them. So here are people that you would think, oh, they're in this small town. What do they know about you know, foreign policy or what? But they're very, very aware of it. And they are asking me because, one, I'm American. And maybe they would ask that question of any American, just out of curiosity. But secondly, the fact that I'm African-American, they're like, you know, it almost felt like, like I have a special phone that I can connect directly to, <laughs> you know, the president and I can ask him what his policy is. It's the um, black phone, I, the black phone. The black phone. But it felt very endearing. And I thought of the two, I definitely prefer that conversation versus the chocolate and coffee <laughs> version <laughs> of being black in Italy, you know. Um, but, you know, to, so that's kind of the funny parts of it all. But the other piece that's very nuanced is I am aware very much when I'm in Sicily and many parts, especially the rural interior, I'm aware of the fact that this is a part of the world where people probably are not interfacing a lot with people who look like me. And so what that means is I don't necessarily read racism particularly into their interactions or their curiosity. Some of it is my otherness in general, because I'm urban, I'm from Los Angeles. I'm also, if they talk to me long enough, they figure out I'm an actor, I'm American. There's all these ways that I'm so different from them, including being black. And where I really see it, though, is through the eyes of my daughter, because she is aware, because we live in Los Angeles, and it's a large, incredibly diverse city, for her to go to a place where there's only one kind of people is very unusual for her, even though she goes there every summer. And at different stages of her development, she asks about that. And that's when we have those conversations. I kind of write about that a little bit in the book. And then the other piece that I would say that happens in Sicily is the only real interaction in terms of the interior, not at the coast, because the coast is very diverse. They get lots of tourism. There's universities like in Palermo. So they have more diversity. And because I'm not living there day in and day out, I can't speak to what it's like for them, you know, those people of color. I know given the larger migrant crisis in the world and that part of the world, it's probably not easy being a person of color in many parts of Europe in general right now. But I will say in the small interior parts of Italy, and I write about this in the book, you know, we've had an interim priest come to town who is of African descent. And that to me, like watching that unfold is just really interesting. And because he is a priest and a man of the cloth and of a faith that they you know, respect and revere, you know, there's a lot of reverence for him. So it's interesting to see all the ways, you know, kind of the, the diaspora experience of it all. And then people do, you know, look at us and ask us questions sometimes. And sometimes, you know, I think they see enough TV that they don't, maybe, you know. And in our town, of course, we come every year. So that has kind of worn off, like they just know us, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, Europe is changing a lot right now. It'll be interesting to see what your experience is like when you go this summer. I've taken a group of students to London for the last couple of summers and have traveled a little bit to, you know, other cities and in countries in Europe, but I haven't been back to Spain. But I'm really excited to see what kind of differences um, have taken place. I've talked to a lot of Black women, particularly, who've actually relocated to Spain mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. are loving their time there. So Yeah, I think it's a different time. And also with social media and the younger generation, like, there's a whole new generation of people for whom it's very, you know, I mean, they know more sometimes about Beyonce than I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. I'm going, wait, what? You know, people who are, you know, 17, 18, 19, you know, they're very clued into that. The globalization part of pop culture and the way we fit into that equation has also changed, has changed perspective for the younger generation, I think. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, what you said and, you know, the point you made in the book about, particularly being in a small town, people often assume that being in a small town, being a person of color, you know, being a foreigner, whatever you are, that that's just going to make it too difficult. But I think when you are in a smaller town and you're not there just passing through, but you're there making a life for yourself, once people understand who you are, you can just be. And I think we all have to give people credit for being able to accept difference if we make the effort. And I'm not saying that it's 
the responsibility of people of color to like make the effort all the time. But I do think that, you know, we're too quick to necessarily assume or to judge like small town, it's going to be terrible. Big city, it's going to be better. Sometimes it's the absolute opposite. Absolutely. And I do think that that is our sort of um, perspective as Americans, because race is so upfront and center here in our culture that we, and as African-Americans, we come at that first. And I have often had to sort of ask myself, wait, is this the thing about just general difference? (laughs) Or is this more specific to their perhaps understanding of what it means to be Black? And sometimes you can't tease it out. But I do know that I tend to move in the world both here and there as let me get to know you first. Like, let's just try to be, I try to meet people that because I could very much lob as many prejudices onto them as they could on me. That could go back and forth all day long and no one get anywhere right? And so for me, it's very, I, I tend to do that. And then once we talk a little bit and, you know, that it more gets revealed and we get to choose how much time we want to spend together. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love the story that you tell in the book about when the tourist comes through town and they get the car accident and they ask you to come solve the problem because you're a foreigner. Like, and that's the thing that makes it so great. It's like, no one's like, get her because she's black. Or it's like, no, get her because she's like, they're all foreigners. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're all foreigners and she speaks English and she needs to tell that foreigner what's happening. <laughs> because right, so. he's clearly, you know, it was, yes, that I loved that scene in the book and I loved writing it. And it's still to this day, I just think to myself, oh my gosh, I cannot. Like that was such a crazy moment. And actually it was a real moment. And I try to express that in, in that chapter where I really was like, oh, I'm a part of this community. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a part of this community. And that was a real aha moment. And something that, which I won't give it away, a moment between my mother-in-law reinforced that. Yeah. I mean, that was what's really, I think, so beautiful about this story is the, that finding home, you said, finding home and finding community in like the most unexpected of places, right? That that's what can tie us. So that being said, again, I have a couple of questions from book club members who wanted to ask you, interestingly, most of them were interested in knowing about your daughter and they wanted to know how she's doing and how your family is doing in Sicily. So that first, that's actually from Anastasia, Sean. She wanted to know specifically. Hi, Anastasia. (laughs) I hope you're listening. Everybody's doing well. Zoella is doing great. She is now um, 14. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. I still can't imagine, you know. And you know what a part of writing the book was? I knew to some degree those years between seven, eight, nine, the years leading up to that, that early part of her life, you know, memory is a tricky thing, right? We, We kind of talked about that earlier on. And I wanted to capture on the page for her this early part of her life that when she's 20 and she may not remember all of these details right and so I wanted to really capture that and but she's great she's she's you know in middle school that finish and she's she's fantastic and I think she's um I think what she's what she's being allowed to experience through this and through the book coming out is seeing the way that her dad is still very much alive and it's giving him to her in a different way and that's been beautiful to watch. Um, and my mother-in-law is great. She's doing well. Everybody in Sicily is good. They're great. They're great. I talk to her every week. She's, you know, fine. And, you know, we, we talked a couple of days ago. She's great. She's doing really well. Oh, that makes me so happy. Okay, so another question comes from Joanna Castillo-Rodriguez. And she says, with exclamation points, there's so many issues about identity. She wants to know if you have any suggestions for raising multicultural children. Your daughter has a Black mom, an Italian dad, and um, she's adopted. Like, there's so many things. And of course, this could be a whole other show, which we actually did do. Our last show was about I heard of that show. So fantastic. I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. But what do you, what's your approach? Gosh, that's a big question. It's a question I think a lot about and where I am now with it for now, you could talk to me a month from now and I may be in a different place. (laughs) So just know that. But what I do with her now is I really let her, I try to listen, especially at this age, to how she's seeing her identity, right? And what parts of her identity, because she's now at an age where she's getting to sort of lean into different parts of who she is, right? So when something comes up at school or a subject matter or something they're studying, like I listen to 
parts of that bit of history that she's responding to or connecting to. But I also make space for all the parts of her identity. And one of the things I believe in, she doesn't have to choose any one thing. But I also am very clear, and I think she knows, you know, to the outside world, she is, you know, at glance, an African-American woman, right? (laughs) People may not know all the different parts of her, but that doesn't mean anything for how she has to move or feel. That's just someone else's, you know, who hasn't met her, their projection, right? And so she's helped me to see that because I don't have, you know, my I have, you know, different ethnicities within my family, but both my parents are African-American, right? And I grew up in Texas in too many years ago. <laughs> um, and at a time when you really did, you were, everything was, you know, there were blacks, Latinos, and whites, and that was kind of it, you know, and maybe the Vietnamese community, right? In Houston at the time. And that was kind of it. And so there's a whole way of being, especially in California now, where I'm like, okay, she's really having a different childhood experience with some of the same issues, but also a different way of moving through the world. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And embrace it all. Embrace it all. I love that. So I'm not going to say Reese Witherspoon copied me or anything, but <laughs> she You and Reese have good taste. You guys got on the bat phone together okay. and you realized, yeah. Yeah. And go Reese. I'm so happy that she also picked this book because obviously the book got so much attention because Mm -hmm. Reese is great Mm -hmm. with the books. So, um, I mean, she's picking some really awesome books. I've looked at a bunch of the different books that she selected. So I'm just curious if you think there might be a movie version of From Scratch because I know the last book Reese Ritherspoon chose is in development for a movie, and you're an actress, so one plus one. (laughs) One plus one equals I don't really know anything right now. (laughs) I can't say anything fully. I Listen, I have always... I, I'm going to back up and say, and you may love this book as well, like Water for Chocolate, which came out, yes. you know, for, okay. And then to say, I love, I, when I was, My that's favorite. a book that I, I love the film. I love this. So the idea of, you know, translating prose to screen, right, is a beautiful, beautiful process. And if Reese, if we get to come along and do all that fantastic, you know, it would be beautiful. And it would be beautiful to see Sicily on screen. Why not? Right. We haven't really yeah. seen it since like The Godfather, um, <laughs> you know, yes. and this is not The Godfather father. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so yeah, that's what I know. <laughs> that's all I can, you know. Yeah. Okay. And another question, um, do you think that there's going to be an Italian version of From Scratch? And how would that make you feel to have your Italian relatives and friends and community read your story? Okay. So Lori, let me tell you, I got news that it is going to be translated into Italian. I just found that oh, out yeah. recently. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I was elated. And then I was like, oh my gosh, now yes. it's yes. so, because, you know, different culture, different way of being, different everything. And it's one thing to, te- they know the book exists. Clearly, I told them from early on and they've seen me writing, you know, over summers for the year. But it's another thing to sit and read it and to be inside their sister-in-law's psyche in a different way, you know. But my hope with it, ultimately, is that for them, when and if they choose to read the book, when it comes, and I hope it's translated really well. I really do. I hope it's translated well as well. But I hope that they see the book, that this is really an homage to a brother and to a son, and that that is really the beauty in the book for all the ways that I reveal how I'm flawed and my thinking and, you know, our past and all of that, that at the end of the day, it's a book about love and about the love of this one man and how it created this greater, bigger love for all of us. I am applauding that it is coming out in Italian because I think it also helps for an Italian audience to see how they are viewed, to see the cross-cultural connections, to see how a Black and Italian love story exists, right? Like, that would be really powerful for them to be able to read it in their own language and not, I think you know. so too. I think it, and I'm thinking when I think about it, I think most specifically of my specific town and like, oh my God, they're going to all, you know, like I'm going to be there buying bread and they're going to be like, oh, that chapter where she talks about, you know, but in <laughs> right? the rest of Italy, I don't really care. I'm happy that it'll be in the rest of Italy. You know what I mean? Because I do think it'll do exactly what you said, which is to sort of raise awareness and get at a time when Italy is grappling with, you know, lots of diversity issues and lots of um, ways in which Italians are being asked to really 
even just the intracultural stuff between Italians and Sicilians. I want that yeah. on the page, right? That diversity, right? Which, you know, goes unspoken sometimes. That was fascinating to me. That mm. was, you know, that it's not your marriage. You're not even Sicilian. Like, you don't even hit the Sicilian bar. That's, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to say it's crazy because, of course, it's not crazy. We have our own crazy ways of discriminating against people, but it just shows that we're all grappling with the same tribalism wherever you happen to be. Yes, exactly. And that's, yeah, and that's what the book, I hope, also lets people know that we are really all the same and we are far bigger and greater than any geography and our, we are human. Yeah. So are there any more books coming out of Tembi I think I have another book in me, maybe more, but I definitely think I have another one. I'm beginning to play around with what that looks like right now and explore that. So yes, the answer is yes. Yes. Excellent. And before I let you go, can you tell me and our listeners a little bit about your online platform, Kitchen Widow? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the Kitchen Widow is just that. It's an online platform, um, really about sort of leaning into sort of what is what I call the art of comfort. So because I was a cancer caregiver for, you know, a decade and then a young widow, I saw how the community of people around me could lean in and really help through that. And I, the ways in which I was supported. So the website is really twofold. One, it has videos. So you can sit and watch these great dinner party conversations over some delicious Sicilian food. But the conversation we're having is really about how do we be connected through the critical times in life, through illness, in grief, how do we support our children, your neighbor, your sister, and even if you're caregiving for a spouse. So it's a wonderful spot to kind of begin to open up a larger conversation and do it in a delicious and fun way. And there's recipes. So it's good. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's so great. And I really just feel like grief is one of those, it's part of life, but we don't have the language for it. When you don't have community around it, it just makes it so much worse. So I just think it's really amazing that the book and then the kitchen widow, these are really great products to help people through that. And who doesn't love food? I don't know. Everybody loves food. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And there are people who just like to watch cooking videos. I have a friend who she just watches because she's like, she doesn't cook. Her stove is broken, but she watches cooking videos all the time. So so I'm like, you know, people love that stuff. People love cookbooks and, you know, yeah. I have three kids age 17, 14 and seven. And the only shows that we can watch as a family are cooking shows, yeah, like but exactly. the competitive ones. Yeah. Like that's what works for everybody. I know. Zoella and I spent a lot of time watching Chopped for like, we were on a Chopped thing for like, I don't know, like two to three years. We were just, it was like Chopped, Chopped, with, you know. So yeah, I yep. get it. I get I'm it. I'm there with no. you 100%. So do I want you to tell everybody two things. One, if there's one recipe in the book that you think people should start with, if they're not necessarily experts in the kitchen. Is there one recipe from the book, which for those of you who haven't read the book yet, From Scratch comes with recipes, like delicious, yummy recipes. Which one do you think people should start with? So if you really have no time, and this is more of an appetizer, but they're marinated olives. Anyone can marinate an olive. That is super simple. Okay. But in terms of full dishes, I would say the pesto alla trapanese, which is a pesto, a Sicilian pesto done as they do in Trapani, which is a town on the northern coast. And it's super simple because everything just goes into a blender and you have this beautiful pesto. And then you just make the pasta and put it on. It couldn't be easier. It's like basil, garlic, tomato, and almonds. That's, That's it. one of the almonds, right? Mm-hmm. That's the one that I was yep. like, I read it in the book and I was like, I've got to make that. Yeah, it's it sounds so, good. so good. It's so good. And if you're vegan, there's no dairy. I mean, I put cheese on a finished dish, but you can easily do it without. Well, why would you not put cheese on something? Well, I'm you just know, kidding. Listen, I'm just kidding. I know, I know. There's a, you know. No, I know, I know. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm from Wisconsin and like cheese goes on all the things. Of course it so. does. Of course. Yes. Tembi, tell everybody how they can stay in touch with you, how they can follow your work. What's the best way? So you can, one, go to my website, tembilock.com, T-E-M-B-I-L-O-C-K-E. And there's a, it'll screen, it'll pop up and just put your email in. That keeps you right on my email list. I send out a monthly sort of email with updates and things like that and some fun freebies and giveaways. So my website, secondly, Instagram, Twitter, 
or I even have a Facebook page and all Tempe Lock is my handle for each of those social media platforms. We'll have a link to all of those in the show notes for this episode so people can find those easily. So thank you so oh, much Oh, Lori, for it's being... been a pleasure. Thank you. And if you, those of you who are listening and haven't read the book, you must read this book. It's really good. It really is life-changing. It'll engender a lot of wonderful conversations and it'll make your dining room table even tastier because of all the delicious recipes. <laughs> oh, thank you in so there as much. Well. This has been a this has been a wonderful wonderful pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this podcast and inviting me to come along. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tembi Locke. And if you haven't already, I highly recommend you read her book from scratch. The writing is really engaging and accessible, and the story really resonates on so many levels. The significance of family, the universality of grief, the healing power of a meal made from scratch. It truly is a beautiful memoir. And Reese Witherspoon, if you're listening, I think it would make a great movie too. I'm just saying. At the end of the day, my main takeaway from this book was to just appreciate your loved ones every day while you have the chance and to never underestimate family bonds. Thank you for listening to episode 14 of the My American Melting Pot podcast. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, please take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps more people find and listen to the show. And don't forget, you can find the show notes for today's episode on myamericanmeltingpot.com, where you can also find fresh new Melting Pot content about parenting, pop culture, and identity politics every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And it's not too late to join the My American Melting Pot book club. We're going to be having our first virtual meeting to discuss from scratch on June 2nd. Links to join the club are on the website and on the My American Melting Pot Facebook page. Episode 14 of My American Melting Pot was recorded at WRTI Studios in Philadelphia. Our editor and producer is Brad Linder. Our sound engineers are Joe Patty, Tyler McClure, and Paul Barchisani. Our PR and marketing guru is Darian Muka. And our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you for listening. And remember to always live your life in color.